Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, and welcome to those of you who are new to this podcast. We talk all about living in your purpose, and I am your guide. I'm an astrologer and business coach, as I said in the intro, and I help healers, guides, and coaches leverage their cosmic blueprint so that they can make more money and impact Part of the work I do is to help people unravel their stories around money and specifically to better understand money karma, what it is, what it means, and how to overcome some of the blocks that show up for us in our lifetime. So much change can occur from when we are born with our specific karmas and and what we do thereafter. So join me on November 11th, where I will be discussing this in more detail and helping you get unblocked. This webinar should give you some points of entry to start to shift your thoughts around money. In order to sign up, just go to weaveyourbliss.com. And at the top on the top bar, you'll see a place to just click and, and register for the webinar. It's totally free. And I hope to see you there. Now on my podcast today, I have a wonderful guest, Michael Pollan, who's written nine works of nonfiction largely about nature and plants. For 30 years, he's been writing books and articles about these places where human and natural worlds intersect. And we had such a lovely conversation about how he came to become a writer, how he got interested in the natural world, his thoughts on activism and journalism and you know where the line is for him around that. Also the food movement, where we have gotten, where we may still have yet to go. And just some beautiful thoughts and and words on, you know, how plants change our consciousness. His latest book is called This Is Your Mind on Plants. And you can get it anywhere that you buy books. And it looks at three specific plants that change our consciousness, including mescaline, coffee, and opium. And he talks a little bit about his own experience Um, with all three of these, which is a continuation of his last book called How to Change Your Mind. So I highly recommend checking out these books. And you can find out more about him at his website, michaelpollan.com. So I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, I'm so grateful for you being here. Your attention is your most valuable asset. So you spending this time with me is such a an honor, really, and a privilege. If you feel moved by this episode, please share it with someone you think who would enjoy it and just make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. Okay, enjoy. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paula. Very good to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. You know, when we first met, I can't remember if it was when I was working at NPR or was it Civil It was at WNYC and you were working for... Either Brian Lair or... Um, Leonard Lopate. Leonard Lopate. Right. That's right. And we met in the green room. It's so funny because I used to prepare your interview for him and now I'm interviewing you for my podcast. <laughs> it's the modern radio. <laughs> yeah. Well, you so, have no one writing all the questions. He, he basically read questions as far as I could tell. 
Yeah, he did. He definitely did prepare some himself, but I did a lot of the food stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we, we used to have like, we used to be in conversation a lot around the food system and stuff. And now I'm actually a farmer. <laughs> like uh-huh. I was just telling you, you know, I'm actually doing the thing, which feels really good. I know. It's great. So um, one thing I noticed, I'm a big fan of your work. I've read all your books and just love what you do, which is why I wanted to have you on. But it seems like all your books have this theme about being around plants. Like I wasn't, I wanted to say <laughs> nature, but then like it's through the lens of plants, you know? So there are a couple I, animals that show up there's yeah. a, there's a woodchuck, as I recall, in my first book. <laughs> yes, but the woodchuck <laughs> is interrupting your relationship with plants. <laughs> well, exactly right. Exactly right. Got between me and the plants, which no animal should ever do. Definitely. Yeah. And you were so game to let me look at your astrology chart. I really appreciate that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. But I can see in your chart this lifelong interest with plants. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and like how you became a writer. Yeah, well, the two things are sort of connected. My thing about plants goes back to gardening as a very young boy. I mean, I put in a what I call the farm at my parents' suburban house in uh, when I was like eight years old. I got them to take me to the garden center and bought some strawberry plants and seedlings. And there's this kid across the street named Charlie DeSalva who was like willing to work for me for free. You know, I would just tell him, turn over this bed or whatever. And he would, he would do it. He was very eager. And so together we made this uh, little farm and we'd sell stuff to our parents whenever we grew something. And I was so taken with the fact that you could use plants to produce things of value that people would pay money for. It was the most, you know, it was like money growing on trees, literally. And I was very taken with that, that value came from plants. That may go back a little further. I had a grandfather, uh, the maternal side, who was a uh, was a devoted gardener, and he was in the produce business. And he made money selling plants. And I loved his garden, and I was imitating his garden when I planted mine. I liked nothing better than to be in his garden when things were ripe, and seeing these red tomatoes and green peppers and yellow squash, and and harvesting was just still is a great kick to me. So, you know, like a lot of people, I kind of lost my interest in gardening when I became an adolescent and through college. You don't really focus on nature very much because it's a window for socializing. It's a window for working out who you are in a in a social context. But then later, after I started my career, which was as an editor first, I wasn't writing initially or writing very little. We were living in Manhattan I was eager to kind of get back to a rural place, couldn't move. There was no such thing as remote work then. But we bought this weekend place where I am right now uh, in Northwest Connecticut. It was basically a broken down dairy farm, five acre chunk that had been carved out of it uh, with an old barn that was falling apart and a house that was falling apart, but beautiful land with lots of interest and cool trees and different levels. I started gardening again in a more serious way. And at a certain point, I recognized that the things that were happening to me in the garden as I struggled with a woodchuck, as I struggled with other pests, as I tried to figure out my place in nature within my rights to change this landscape um, uh, and and what would guide those changes, what would be a harmonious way to do it? Was it within my rights to put up fences? 
you know, to guard against one species to protect another species. I got all tangled up in these questions, but it was the woodchuck and this war I got into with the woodchuck that really focused the issue because I, you know, I did some crazy things because this woodchuck kept coming back every week to my garden and completely decimating it to the point where, you know, I poured gasoline down his burrow and lit a match. And I mean, it did some things that people who think of me as an environmentalist are kind of shocked to hear. But I was doing what humans have always done. You know, we feel entitled. We objectify nature. We feel like we're the smartest creature on the land. So we should, of course, get our way and we should be able to outwit any other creature. So what was happening between me and this woodchuck, which escalated and I described it in Second Nature, my first book is my horticultural Vietnam as things got worse and worse, made me see that what was going on in my garden was representative of what was going on with our species and, and nature and that there might be a way to write about what was happening in the garden that would illuminate some of the big environmental questions that were on my mind. So I started writing a series of essays uh, based in the garden, um, most a couple for Harper's, uh, mostly for the New York Times magazine. I had a kind of regular gig there doing these essays, which was really fun. And along the way, someone said, oh, you should do a book of these. And I did. And that was Second Nature, my first book, which is, you know, yeah, very much about plants. But it's also about other orders. You know, there's a lot on landscape, too. There's a lot on, you know, lawns. I mean, lawns are about plants, but they're about a lot more than that. They're about a certain conception of nature and certain ideals of how a human landscape should look. And I got very interested, too, living here in New England with understanding what is wild and what is wilderness. And we have a very naive understanding when we take a walk in the woods, we think it's nature, but in fact, it's a cultural landscape because it's been changed radically in New England. Almost every, I mean, there, there is old growth in Maine and a little bit of it elsewhere, but basically it was all, all the trees came down for iron to smell iron and everything we see is regrowth. And even before that, Native Americans were reshaping this landscape in much more profound ways than we appreciate. We picture them living very lightly on the land, and uh, but they managed the land to maximize hunting and things like that. And it was reading William Cronin's book, Changes in the Land, which is a spectacular introduction to environmental history that totally changed what I see when I walk through the woods and made me understand that the line between nature and culture is n not as simple as we, we like to think. So that kind of launched me on the project that I've, in a way, continued on. I recently had occasion to reread Second Nature. We were recording an audiobook. I was kind of shocked and embarrassed to find that, like, I haven't had an idea since then. <laughs> I had a um, feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> that... I mean, I couldn't see it then, but in germ was even the psychedelic work. Certainly the interest in cooking and, and uh, nutrition, it's all there in this kind of germinal way. You can't tell which seeds are going to sprout. I mean, and they say this about first novels, you know, that you put everything in them and everything is there and everything becomes an elaboration after that. So anyway, so yeah, so that was the core. I mean, I think most writers have a have a set of kind of final questions, you know, that their work tends toward. And mine definitely have to do with this human engagement with nature. And I've taken it in lots of different directions, but that, yeah. that question still, still preoccupies me. So I'm curious if when you're thinking of a new subject, are you just following your curiosity or are you getting kind of cues from the environment? Like are people talking about something and you're kind of 
It's yeah, both. Interest. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, y- you do get information from the culture. And it's one of the reasons I like to do public speaking. And, and in the days when we could meet people and, you know, go to bookstores and things like that, I get a lot of information out of the questions people ask. And people like hand me little pieces of paper with leads and things like that. And sometimes they pan out. But yeah, my interest in psychedelics, I described in the beginning of How to Change Your Mind. I was at a dinner party and hearing this August professor, Berkeley professor in her 60s, talk about her LSD trips like last week made me like something's going on here. So I think that's one of the skills journalists cultivate is is a sense of where the culture might be going or what, what the culture's chewing on and is anxious about. That was certainly true with food. I wrote a, a piece called Power Steer for the New York Times that became the chapter on the cattle industry in, in The Omnivore's Dilemma. And that was an assignment from an editor, a very smart editor at the Times, who had noticed that Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, which had come out a year before, was a, a real surprise bestseller. And he deduced that people were very anxious about meat. And there had also been a case of mad cow disease, I think, that turned up in the Northwest or British Columbia or somewhere up there. And that we were going through this questioning process. And, you know, and he said, you should write a big piece on meat. So that's what we do. We try to see around one corner, no more than one corner, because then people don't know what what the fuck you're talking about. I mean, you don't want to be too, as 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 one of my mentors told me many, many years ago, as journalists, we only want to be short-term visionaries. Long-term visionaries, you know, don't make a living. (laughs) They can't pay the mortgage. (laughs) That's true. I mean, there's some books like I've been reading Scott Nearing's work. I don't know if you've read like The Good Life, but he has a whole bunch of other books as well. Yeah, I know him, but I I don't know his work. Yeah, I'll send you one of his books. Okay. There's one in particular that's really, really, really good. It's just his, his life story, you know, and what he encountered in our political system at the time, just as a very, very far reaching visionary of you know, thinking of what society can be and what it. No, he and he was a he was a main character, right? Was he? Yes, he became a main character. He left Vermont. He moved to Vermont and started homesteading during the Great Depression right. because yeah. he was ousted from the University of Pennsylvania when he spoke out about child labor and was actively seeking a different kind of economics. So he he basically was blacklisted. So he was like, okay. Great Depression happened. I'm going to go homestead. <laughs> yeah. So, and he taught a lot of other people how to do yeah, it too. Like Elliot Coleman. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Who actually, I think it was he who introduced me to Helen Nearing. Gott was dead already. And I met her and she gave me a signed copy of one of his books. So, so I have beautiful. read one of them. I'll, I'll write you after this and we'll try to see which one it is and I'll send you another okay, one. Okay. Great. You know, you were game to let me look at your astrology a little bit. Yeah. And I do want to talk more about books but in the context of like what I see in your chart is that you're a polite disruptor. <laughs> so it's kind of what you were saying. It's like you can say anything, Michael, and people are like both shocked, but also like, oh, but he's so diplomatic about it, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I think you know? I have a gift for sounding reasonable, even when I'm not being. It's totally true. And so, yeah, yeah you've got like beautiful combinations for creativity and being disciplined and getting things done and, you know, for, for writing and being in the right places at the right time to make things happen. But where would you see something like polite disruptor? So for me, I'll describe it for people who are listening, who do know about astrology. So you have Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, which is all about expansion in the rising sign, which Mm -hmm. is, and it's very strong there. So it's got this quality of like 
being positive, looking toward the future, even a little visionary, being a teacher, mm-hmm. being a leader. And then K2, which is the South Node, and it has no head. It's like a, a headless body. And so it has this way of coming into a situation with the kind of snake energy that the nodes have. The nodes are where the eclipses happen. So it's like this kind of like shadow energy and it can upend things. So AOC is my favorite mm-hmm. example because she's in her K2 period. So she's, she's that disruptor, but she has a lot of Mars. So it's not polite. It's just like mm-hmm. direct. <laughs> you I know see. what I mean? <laughs> so you have this ability to say things and to see things. I would love to talk about the omnivores dilemma. Now it's been like 15 years since it came out, you know, and is that right? It had yeah. such a huge yeah. impact on, on me personally, but also on, I feel like the world, like, you know, people in my world who weren't thinking about food started to think about it. Mm-hmm. I read that book. And some would argue that it like catalyzed the food movement. A lot of people wanted to make you like the leader of our food movement. I know. And I sort of ran in the other direction. <laughs> so I'm wondering, how can you like, how do you look back on that and kind of speak to what happened once that book was published? Like, did you have any idea it was going to be that powerful? No, I had no idea. Although, I mean, the reaction to Power Steer when I published it, this is the piece on the cattle industry, was quite strong. And um, and I remember it created this huge interest in, um, you know, grass-fed meat as an alternative. Suddenly, this market popped up that hadn't existed except in very obscure corners of the, you know, the Western price world. It's funny, the entire, my wife reminds me of this. Judith points out that when the whole time I was writing it, I kept thinking I was late. I was really late. This thing is taking off. There's something going on in the culture around food and I got to get this book out. So there were things happening, you know, I think so. I think I get credit for think, you know, for riding a wave or, or catching a wave at a good moment. But there was this generalized anxiety about food and a recognition of its importance that was starting. As it turns out, I wasn't late. There was so much more to happen. And a lot did happen after the book. And in a funny way, I feel similar about psychedelics and the recent work, which also caught a wave. But when I was writing that book, no one was working on it who wasn't a total psychonaut already. And, and I had the opposite feeling, which is like, I'm working on this book. I think it's really important. There's something going on here. Where is everybody? You know, there was no one else writing about it. I, I felt no competitive pressure at all. I think it's very interesting that in these two very different conversations, I was able to play a role, catalytic role. You know, I, I don't think I'm an original thinker. I think I, I have very good antenna and I pick up what's going on in the culture and I can combine things. I think I'm a good dot connector. Um, that's a big part of what I do. And a lot of what I did in my food work was connect dots. Before the early 2000s, and, and I give Eric Schlosser a lot of credit here too, because I wasn't the only one doing this. But you have to remember the state of food journalism back then, you know, in like 2002, 2003. You had um, food journalism, which consisted of, you know, the Wednesday section of the newspaper with profiles of chefs and recipes and maybe a little thing about what was in the farmer's market. And if you wanted to learn about agriculture, you had to read trade magazines. You had to read Beef Today and Progressive Grocer and all these things. It wasn't covered. Maybe in the business section, there'd be something about Cargill, or but it was never about farming. The idea that these were part of a system, that what was happening in this one beat 
was affecting what was happening in this other beat, that the way we were growing food was influencing the way we're eating and vice versa. And was just nobody was putting those dots together and nobody saw food as a system. Eric Schlosser, I think, was the first one that I read. Marion Nessel, who publishes her book, I think, in 2002, Food Politics, she was a, a major figure in kind of showing people that you had to look at agricultural policy to understand what was fucked up in the American diet. That was huge. I mean, nobody was connecting those dots. I think that's what was happening then. And as soon as you started looking at food as a system, as the, as the academics say, you problematized agriculture as we were pra practicing it. And it raised all these kind of questions. The other thing I brought to it, though, that was different than Eric or Marion Nessel is my lens, because I started doing this garden writing and because of second nature and because of reading environmental history, was about ecology. I was always looking at What's the ecology of the system? How does it affect nature? Is our beef coming from a solar-powered system or an oil-powered system? I was looking at those fundamental ecological questions. And that was just kind of, those were my questions. Eric's questions, Eric Schlosser's questions are much more about power and justice. And everything he does is through that lens. And I think writers usually have a lens that they see the world with. And mine has always been strongly around ecology. I think that's really what separates the omnivore's dilemma from fast food nation in a way, even though they're describing a similar system, at least in the first third of the omnivore's dilemma. I spend more time describing alternatives than he did. I was very interested in alternatives. One of the things I learned as a writer is that the way investigative reporting has been handled for most of my generation that is that it's enough to kind of expo expose the flaws of a system. In investigative reporting is really dark and the people who do it are very cynical and skeptical and they perform an incredibly valuable service. They're willing to go into just into the cesspool and bring out truth, but they're not interested in hope <laughs> and they're not interested in solutions. They're interested in bringing the bad guys to justice, upsetting the apple cart. And I learned actually writing Power Steer, that piece where I fought hard with my editors to preserve maybe 250 words about grass-fed beef as an alternative when it was this tiny little niche, just to show people that we're not trapped in this world and that we could imagine another way of growing cattle. I fought to keep that in and it was a very long piece that had to be cut. I think I submitted 12,000 words and they were only going to run 8,000 words. And I saw the result of offering people hope. People looked for hope. I was thrilled for two reasons. One was literary vanity that people got to the end of the art of 8,000 words because that's where that stuff was. But the other was walking into a, um, a butcher shop on College Avenue in Oakland, just kind of curious because I was hearing this chatter online about grass-fed beef and saying to the butcher, so do you have any grass-fed steaks? And he goes like this. He says, what is going on here? In the last two weeks, that's all anybody wants is grass-fed beef. <laughs> and he never sold any of it. And I realized there was a power in that. There was a power in offering hope and an alternative. And I made a point after that to whenever, I, I, I mean, never to, just for its own sake, because sometimes there is no hope, but whenever I could point, gesture towards solutions, other ways of doing things. So that became a really important part of the omnivore's dilemma, you know, discovering for me, Joel Salatin and what he was doing and that there was a whole other model that might work. And I think that 
helped in a way that fast food nation, you know, exposed a lot of wrongs, except for labor organizing, which it did point in the direction of. And that was very important. It didn't point in a direction that eaters, you know, and shoppers could do something different. And I, I think it's very important to offer people some kind of recourse because so much of what's wrong in our lives, you know, we feel powerless. And one of the things that's very important about the food movement, it, it makes people feel empowered because there's more you can do in food than you certainly around, than around climate change, for example, or any number of other issues. But it also feeds into what I was saying about being a positive disruptor. You know, it's like you want to give hope as well. You don't want to just give some dire information because people stop reading because they can't take it. They do. There's enough there's enough hopelessness and despair out there that and that's one of the things that got me so interested in psychedelics is like here was something positive going on in the midst of a mental health crisis and an environmental crisis. It has relevance to the environment, too, I think. and uh, and so I'm drawn to that. I mean, I'm definitely a glass half full person. And I think that's a little unusual for a journalist. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's contagious, you know, like that. I think that's why your books are so readable as well. They're, you know, I think you don't give yourself enough credit. You're also a mercury ruled person because your rising sign is Gemini. So you you have this way with words that's really beautiful. And it's like a pleasure to read something, even if it's like hard to take in. So <laughs> I've always appreciated well, pleasure. That well, that goes with the positive thing. I mean, I, I think writing has to give pleasure, whether it's at the level of the sentence or the metaphor or the story. I, I just think that's, you can't do it if you're not, if you haven't figured out a way to be, you know, to give pleasure to the reader. Uh, even, you know, in nonfiction too. I mean, I, I just, I really value all those things and work very, that's what, that that's the hard part for me is mm. figuring out a way to tell the story that, you know, has suspense and has all the satisfactions of storytelling. So this is kind of a big question, but I just want to ask you like, you know, there's been so much pushback against like activist journalism, you know, as at Civil Eats, we've dealt with this and tried to, you know, I'm no longer a part of Civil Eats, but I was very much a part of it. So what do you view as the journalist's role in supporting change in society? Well, I think it changes at different times. I don't think there's one answer. What happened with me and food is that the more I learned, the more I began to draw conclusions and the more I began to have a sense of where things needed to go. And at that point, it would have been disingenuous of me to pretend I didn't have ideas about where things needed to go. And I was very fortunate in that my editors, especially at the New York Times, were willing to let me at the end of, at the ends of articles, where editors often don't think readers ever go, but they do, to basically say what I think. It had to do partly with the fact that they didn't see food as a controversial issue. There are certain areas of journalism where it's okay for the reporter to be an advocate. And I've never quite understood this. For example, most environmental journalists are pro-environment. <laughs> you don't have people who, who you know, love the Koch brothers becoming environmental journalists. And that's fine with everybody. And I don't know why that is, because a lot of people are against, you know, what environmentalism stands for. It's just one of those beats. And I think food, at least to editors in New York, was something where everybody was on the same side. It should be more sustainable. Chemicals are bad, all that. So it was a protected space in a way. It changed, though. At a certain point, the industry started hitting back 
and demand more space for itself on the op-ed pages and demand more equal time. And that happened after Food Inc. It was a very dramatic moment when the industry, no doubt hiring some crisis PR firm, decided to, to push back in a big way. And things changed. I think it depends on where you are on an issue, where, where the arc of your own education is. In A lot of my work has gradually moved into an advocacy role, but I still want access to the news pages. I don't want to be stuck on the op-ed pages. And so you, you have to be careful. Like, I don't associate with groups. I've never joined a, any particular group or advisory board. I don't do that kind of stuff because I want to preserve some independence and you lose that at a certain point. So, but I teach my, you know, I teach journalism too. And I teach my students that the goal of journalism is not objectivity, which I think is, is something of a myth or a, a conceit like omniscience. It's fairness. Even if you're going to write a very critical piece about Monsanto, you need to present their arguments in a way they would recognize as their arguments and give them the space. And, and you know, even if you're then going to demolish them, but, you know, they have to you, you can't distort what they're what they're saying just to make your point. So fairness, I think, is really the goal that we go for and making sure that all the relevant voices get get a place uh, in your story. But to pretend to objectivity when it's clearly not where you are. I think it's kind of, you know, a fool's errand. So like there's no such thing as objectivity, you know, in the whole world, we're humans. <laughs> so yeah, we, no, you know. we all have values. We know this and, and, and whether they're subconscious or conscious, they're there, um, they're biases. I think we just have to be aware of them and we have to, the other thing is to disclose where you're coming from. And so the reader can decide. And I do that. I mean, I, I always write in the first person. I don't use the omniscient third person in my writing just because I think it's a myth. There's always someone talking. There's a great line in uh, the beginning of Walden uh, where Thoreau tells us he's going to speak in the first person and he knows that this is not how it's always done. But guess what? There's always a first person. Otherwise, there's no writing. This doesn't come out, you know, this isn't God handing down the word. But that, of course, was the way journalism was done for a long time. Although it's changing. I mean, even in the mainstream press, I think Trump has forced everybody to uh, come out of their shells. Totally. And that's a good thing, actually. <laughs> I guess it is a good thing, but look what it took. I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 Astrology Guidebook, and it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. So get a hold of it. It's $33 and 100% of profits go to an indigenous-led environmental organization. So I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything and you can plan around those dates. So I hope that's helpful to you. If you are looking for better ways to understand astrology and yourself, you are in luck because I have a course out now called The Planets. 
and it goes in depth into the stories of the planets, their characteristics, how we can have a relationship with them, how they may afflict us, and what to do about it. You also learn a lot about karma, about Vedic astrology, what it is, where it originates from, how to read your chart. So it's a pretty in-depth look and a helpful tool for you to better understand astrology. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to weaveyourbliss.teachable.com. You'll see the planets there and you can click through and learn more. What would you say about the food movement now? Like, have we gotten anywhere? Like, here it is. <laughs> you know, we had this, there was this year, like 2009. It was like, everybody's talking about this. Everybody cares where their food's coming from and shopping at the food farmer's market and thinking about eating meat that's better for them and better for the animals and better for the environment. Like, have we gotten somewhere? Are there still pressing issues we're not talking about? I mean, I have my opinions, but I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> you know, I think the progress has been pretty limited. The resistance was a lot stronger than we realized, and that the it's that cheap food is is so baked into the system, and people are dependent on cheap food to survive. That most of the changes we're advocating involve really learning to pay the true cost of food, and there are just so many people who can't do it. And you're up against an industry that has price on its side, uh, even though the externalities are just you know abominable. I think there's been a change in consciousness. I think people know a lot more about where their food comes from and care a lot more about it. I think we've seen a lot of innovation in the food industry that has been driven by the food movement. The innovation is all in startups and you've got thousands of food startups that in one way or another reflect the values of the food movement. Some of them are being absorbed in the industry and changing the industry from inside. That's really happening in places. Some of them, and probably more of them, are being co-opted, you know, because they all get bought eventually. Nobody stays independent in the food movement. It's very hard to make money in food. You know, you had all this capital from Silicon Valley. Everybody wanted to do their food startups. And then they realized, oh, these returns suck. You know, <laughs> two or three percent. We're used to software. Businesses that can scale in a way food can't scale. It's almost There's, like capitalism is really what we need to upend first. Well, you know, one of the things you learn when you start working hard on food reform is that you have to reform everything. You have to pay people a living wage so they can afford to pay the real cost of food. So therefore, you've got to look at wages and the minimum wage becomes a food issue, which it can. One of the things that's happened, I think that's very positive, is that the food movement has joined forces with the labor movement or, a, or the sector of the labor movement, most involved with um, farming and restaurant workers. And that grew out of a recognition that you can't address these problems without dealing with the fact that it's the most underpaid sector of the economy. Until people have more money, they're not going to be able to buy the kind of food that we that farmers want to sell and that the goal should not be driving down what we pay farmers because they don't make money as it is, but that it should be putting enough money in circulation so people can buy things. I think what we've seen, you know, with uh, the labor side, uh, the, you know, things like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, I think there, there are some great success stories. I think that organic is a very mixed up issue right now, but I mean, if you add together local food, organic food, grass pastured food, there is an alternative food economy now that's quite large. 
Now, some people would say this organic food is just more industrial food. I mean, and we can argue that point, but it is an alternative. Uh, it is produced in a different way and it is produced following regulations that are grounded in values from the food movement. But now that's, you know, if you added that all together, you're like way north of $50 billion. And that's something, you know, that's something that's been built. I also think that the pandemic, you know, gave a real boost to alternative food systems because the mainstream food system buckled, you know, it had so much trouble. The supply chains were all screwed up. I was talking to a farmer on Saturday outside of Boston who his CSA went from 500 subscribers to 2000 subscri subscribers in the midst of the pandemic. It then came down to like a 1200 or something like that because some people just can't deal with the CSA box. It just challenges their lifestyle. And I, and I get that, but he's thriving and he's leased more land and, you know, he's, he's having, you know, a really good couple of years. So some positive things are happening. So it's not all negative. Is, is this the amount of change I would have wanted to see? You know, there was hope that Obama was going to do something around policy and he completely dropped the ball. I, I think he was a tremendous disappointment given that he understood the issues. He was very well disposed, was, you know, I mean, he started to work on uh, concentration in the food industry and then dropped it as soon as the business lobby got on his back. He was very timid about it. And, you know, he made a political calculation that there probably wasn't enough political support to invest capital. That may be. Michelle Obama did more. I mean, she gave more visibility to the issues, I think. She taught a lot of people about food issues and was really valuable. But that was in lieu of him doing anything. And that was a deliberate decision. You know, he he basically gave her the issue and ducked himself. But, you know, nothing has happened in Congress to speak of, except that there are more, the food movement has more allies in Congress than it did. There's a handful of people really committed who would like to do something. But agricultural policy is still in the hands of these farm state monoculture Congress people. Yet then you have, you know, but you have somebody like Cory Booker, you know, an urban legislator who's gotten really interested in food issues and wants to end factory farming and wants to reform agricultural policy and is a vegan and talks about it. And that's new. That wouldn't and have happened like 10 years ago. No, no. So a lot of the changes are in the realm of consciousness and business. It's not everything we want to see, but that's politics. You know, I mean, everything just moves slightly. You have this challenge from outside and then capitalism co-ops it. But capitalism changes a little bit in the process. I think that's where we are. It's not satisfying. It's not adequate, but it's something. I think we were up against a much tougher adversary. And I don't think we had the... I mean, if people like me were leading the movement, we had no political skills involved, believe me, because uh, I don't have any. There was another kind of, you know, we needed, we needed other kinds of talent. You know, we had the storytellers. That's not enough. Something you said way back when was let a thousand flowers bloom. And I don't know if that came from you or someone else, maybe, but this idea that like, it's going to come from the ground up, you know, and that's really what I've taken to heart. That's why I live on a farm. You know, my, I am so blessed because I have an online business. So I make enough money that my husband can actually work the farm. And so we grow a ton of food and we give a lot of it to the food bank. So it's like this, this way that we can give back from the way that I've been, been able to establish my business and do business in a different way 
do something, you know, something well, from that the ground I, up. Yeah, no, I think that that idea is very important. And there are a lot of people, you know, living, living their values around food and nature. And that's very important. And they don't, you know, have a large microphone usually. And to the extent that my work has had any influence on them, I think it's great. That's how it should work. I think there's a kind of a naive idea that many people have in the food movement that you get the right powerful person on your side, convince him with your or her with your arguments, and then all change will happen. I see this, you know, Alice Waters is a dear, dear friend of mine, and she sees politics this way. You know, she famously gave Clinton a, a you know, a frog hollow peach, and that was going to be the moment, the epiphany, and then he, and then everything would change. But presidents actually don't have that much power. <laughs> you know, that we see, we see this right now with Biden. They can't, they can't just kind of flip the switch. There has to be a, a grassroots political movement behind them. And it's more important to talk to the public than the elites. The elites will be the last people to get it. And I see this now. Now Alice is like working with Gavin Newsom and, and, uh, or the head of the university system. And these people have a limited ability to move until there's a groundswell, until they really see it at the ballot box. And the food movement is nowhere near exerting influence at the ballot box. Well, I want to switch gears on that depressing note <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and talk about your latest book because you've been focused on, like we were talking about, the way that plants relate to our consciousness. And I love the title. This is your mind on plants being a child of the 80s. <laughs> uh-huh. So you saw a lot of those commercials. I, I was like, oh, yeah, this is good. Um, <laughs> you know, and it follows the thread of what we've been talking about, how you're so good at kind of seeing you know, seeing something in a different way, like the botany of desire really did that. Like, how do these plants actually relate Mm. to us instead of us just thinking that we're kind of driving the show, you know? And I felt like there was a little flavor of that here. And ironically, I was taking three months off coffee when I read this book. And I was like, oh, this is so informative. (laughs) Yeah, it was really funny. But I wish you would talk a little bit about it. Like what drove you to dig deeper? Because you had the book, How to Change Your Mind, which is really about the psychedelics research that has been done, what's going on now in that. Uh, This feels kind of like a continuation in a way. In some ways, it is a continuation or taking it into a new place. You know, How to Change Your Mind, I stayed very close to the science. And the reason for that partly had to do with the fact science was really interesting and yielding a lot of very cool results. But it was also because it was a fringy subject that people were not yet ready to take seriously. And in our culture, scientific validation is how you get something to be taken seriously. That's the highest, most authoritative discourse we have. I don't believe it. it's always justified, but that's just a fact. And I ignored the fact that there was a whole other world of psychedelics that pre-existed Western research, and that was indigenous use. And I had, and I wanted to, I wanted to look at that. I wanted to see what, what do we have to learn from Native Americans about psychedelics? They've been using peyote for some Native Americans for six thousand years, and it doesn't disrupt their society. The opposite, it, it heals it. It makes it more cohesive. They've been using it to heal. They, they have all this trial and error experience. You know, what can we learn from them? But I was also interested in, you know, I've, I've been interested since Botany of Desire in one of the most curious uses to which we put plants, which is to change consciousness. You know, to me, I was on um, 
Trevor Noah's show last night, and he was saying, how do you, you know, make this you know, right angle change from food to psychedelics? And I said, it wasn't so right angle for me. They're both part of our relationship to plants. Food is, is the obvious one, the most significant in terms of its environmental impact and, and our survival is eating plants. That's the desire they gratify is our desire for nourishment. But the other thing you find as far back in history as you want to go or is or in, in any culture you want to go is people use plants to change consciousness. And that has, there's a chapter on cannabis and botany desire, you'll recall. And that's been on my mind for a long time. So what's the plant the most of us use to change consciousness? And that's coffee. And caffeine is the most common uh, psychoactive drug. Uh, it's 90% of people on earth have a daily engagement with caffeine, whether in the form of coffee or tea or chocolate or cola. There's a couple other plants that, that make caffeine. And also, nobody thinks of caffeine as a drug. And I wanted to show that, you know, a lot of people think drugs are like something other people do. But in fact, no, it's something we all do and in one way or another. And so, I wanted to look at that one. And then when I realized I was going to do a couple different plants, in a way, a la Botany of Desire, in some ways, this book is the most like that. There was this adventure I'd had publishing this piece on opium a long time ago in the 90s. I had had to censor it for legal reasons. It was at the height of the drug war and I was growing opium poppies and turning them into opium tea. And we were having this opiate crisis, opioid crisis, that I thought it was time to revisit that piece, restore the missing pages, and talk in a very direct way about what is a drug? Why do we use them? How should we regulate them? You know, our society is crazy on the subject of drugs. And, and so that the, the book, in a way, becomes a, a whole, like, let's go right down to fundamentals and look at this issue of us and psychoactives. What is a drug? It's very hard to define a drug, by the way. I mean, and the line between drugs and food is very, is very vague. You know, if a drug is something you ingest that changes you, well, you've got food too. And, and food and mood is, there's a lot richer relationship there than we normally acknowledge how much food affects mood. We see it with our kids, you know, their drug, of course, their caffeine is sugar. Anyone who has a kid knows that kids, you know, essentially have drug experiences when you give them chocolate or Fruit Loops or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's amazing. And we do. And we let our kids get addicted to it. And also the moralization of addiction. And I, I wanted to examine all of that. It was a, a kind of fun project. It wasn't quite as uh, onerous as How to Change Your Mind. And I love that. I love profiling plants. And they're such interesting plants in this case. Um, and you also, you know, in both books, you go into the experiential journalism, you do it yourself, you know, and you talk yeah. about your own experience. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that. And, and the topic of this podcast is living in your purpose. So do you feel like psychedelics offer something to us to help us understand ourselves better so that we can live in more alignment? Yeah. So I am my own guinea pig in a lot of this work. It's just something that's been part of my journalism. I started doing these first person pieces about what was happening in my garden. So I've been a character in my work from the beginning. And I learned that it was a really good way to explore a subject was to have some skin in the game. And one of the things I don't like about journalism is, is that it's this easy sideline vantage on reality where journalists can have their 
uh, I don't know. They, they're, they're just a little, they don't have skin in the game so they can take easy shots. I've written lots of pieces where I've become part of the story. Power steer, to go back to that, you know, I bought a steer and followed it through the whole food industry. I, I became kind of a baby rancher and that gave me a perspective that was a little different than the journalist perspective. So that when it came time to give my steer a, a hormone implant, you know, the easy journalistic finger wag is you shouldn't do that. The French don't, you know, the Europeans don't do that. It's really bad. But if you're the rancher, it's the difference between profit and loss because the hormone implant costs $15 and it yields about $50 in extra weight. So you understand the imperative more if you're inside. And the same was true with psychedelics. I mean, people were describing experiences that seemed so incredible to me, single day transformations, experiences that they counted as significant as the death of a parent or the birth of a child, occasioned by a mushroom. I mean, that, that you have to want to know what that's about. I could have interviewed a hundred people about it, but until I had the experience myself, I really wasn't going to fundamentally understand it. In terms of what they have to offer people in terms of purpose, you know, they're not for everyone. And I don't recommend that everybody do it. But if you're curious, if you're so inclined, yes, uh, the answer is yes. And, and they can help you understand yourself better. They can do a lot of the things that meditation does a lot more quickly. They're kind of a shortcut there, uh, but they are a tool for self-understanding. And if it's approached in the right spirit, which is to say with intention, I think that's the most important thing. You don't just take a psychedelic for fun because it's actually very hard work a lot of the time, but it's a journey to the interior and that can be a very scary place to go. But you usually come back with something, some kind of knowledge of yourself or some renewal of your sense of purpose or for me, sometimes it's been a resetting of priorities. You know, when I, I've realized that I've kind of, I'm putting the cart before the horse or I'm, I'm just focusing on the wrong stuff. I've come out of experiences with a very clear sense. Oh, this is what I should be doing. Not that. I think in, you know, when used properly, they have enormous potential, but no one should feel obliged to do it. It's, it's something that you have to arrive at. And also it's very different at different points in your life. It's very different having a psychedelic experience at 20 as opposed to 60. You're going to get very different results. So, you know, when's the best time to do this is a question too. And for me, it was, I was a pretty, I was a late bloomer. I think I was 59 before I had a psychedelic experience. But yeah, I mean, I learned, I learned important things. And in terms of figuring out purpose, I don't know that I've solved all the problems I went into it with, but it's very helpful for breaking out of habit. And I think habit as we get older is the biggest impediment to living with a sense of purpose, with having your priorities straight. Habit is so powerful and we get stuck and the grooves get deeper and deeper the older we get. I'll never forget this metaphor that one of the scientists offered me when I was asking him to explain how these substances work. And this is quite relevant to your question, I think. He was a Dutch neuroscientist and he said, think of your mind as a hill, a snow-covered hill, and your thoughts as sleds going down the hill. And the more trips you take down the hill, the deeper the grooves get. And after a while, it's impossible to go down the hill without falling into a groove. They become attractors. There's no original path down the hill. 
And then think of the psychedelic experience as a fresh snowfall that fills all the grooves and once again allows you to take a new path down the hill. I think that's a beautiful metaphor. I think that captures something really important about the experience. And it also points to why I think their value is greater the older you get. There's good reason to wait to do this till you really do feel stuck. And that rumination is occupying more of your mental time than creativity. And when that balance goes off, that's I think that's a very useful time to think about having psychedelic experience. Keeping in mind, it's definitely not for everybody. People with certain kinds of mental illness or risk for that should not use it. And it's breaking the law still to yeah. do it. And everybody should understand that. It's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> definitely complicated, but like most interesting things. Yeah. And I think I told you as you were talking, I was thinking about Ram Dass, you know, because he was such a big influence on the psychedelic movement early on. And he actually completely stepped away from it when he met his teacher, uh, yeah. his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And I read his uh, autobiography recently and got this really rich inside view of what it was like to be a part of that movement and like what happened, what went wrong, you know, from his view, like how that all went down and so fascinating. And then he also talks a lot about meditation as an alternative. So not everybody has access yeah. to these tools and Maybe it's not right for them, but he was saying, and his guru taught him, you can get the same place. You just have to sit yeah, down and, and you meditate. Can. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, as I said earlier, it is a bit of a shortcut. But remember, it was psychedelics that brought him to meditation. And that's a very common path. It's remarkable how many of the American Buddhists, the people who brought Buddhism to America and other religious traditions beginning in the 70s and 80s, began with psychedelics. They were interested in consciousness and, and whether it could be changed in productive ways. I mean, I've interviewed Joan Halifax and Jack Kornfeld and people like that, and they had big psychedelic experiences. And then we're looking for ways to kind of implement the insight or sustain the consciousness that they had had a glimpse of because psychedelics are not a practice. You know, you can't do it every day. And they found that meditation was a very logical place to take that journey. And I totally get that. I mean, my psychedelic experience has aided my meditation practice in, in profound ways. And I interviewed a, a psychiatrist who's, who works on meditation, who made this point to me that we may sometimes, we may someday use psychedelics as a way to kickstart a meditation practice because it gives people a glimpse of the mental mode that they're seeking to get into. A lot of psychedelic experience, you know, we hear people describe in their trip reports the, the climax usually, the fireworks, but more than half of the experience is the denouement after that, where you are in a meditative state, where you can direct your mind in this direction or not. You're not, you haven't lost control of your mind. You've regained control, yet you are undistractable and just dialed in. And that goes on like for a couple of hours and it's really productive part of the experience that people don't talk about enough. And that is what resembles meditation. And that is the kind of state you can recover in meditation. You know, once you've laid down a path in the brain, you can exercise it. And so I think that's what you can do in meditation. There are certain images I, I've had in uh, during psychedelic experience that 
are kind of visual koans that I, I use in meditation. And it's very helpful. So there's a lot of interesting, I mean, there's more to be understood on the links between meditation and, uh, and psychedelic experience. And, you know, we do know that actually the brain scans of experienced meditators during meditation and people on psychedelics have very interesting parallels. They're very similar. And that's no accident. So as you're talking, I'm just thinking about something cool in your chart is that you're born on a full moon. Like just as the moon is becoming at its maximum fullness, the moon is about the mind, but it's also about creativity. It's about like vision. And also it's in the second house for you, which means that's how you you make money through your creative vision, you know? (laughs) So this tool is enabling you to kind of step out of the box, so to speak, so that you can have that creative vision. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. I have some rapid fires for you. So what is one piece of advice that's really helped you in your life? My dad, uh, who died a few years ago, was a great life advisor, not just to me, but to a whole community of people. And his advice, whenever you were faced with a decision, should I buy that house? Should I quit this job? Should I start this business? Should I do this? Was always go for it. And he, it was very empowering. And I've had various forks in the road where I had to take a chance, you know, giving up a, a day job to become a writer, leaving, you know, the East Coast for California. There've been a series of them along the way. I usually took the, the more adventurous path and, and, and it usually worked out. Uh, I think it always worked out. So go for it. Good piece of advice. I've seen it crash and burn too, I should say. (laughs) Warning. There's a warning label on that one. (laughs) Disclaimer anyway. When you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? Exercise. To go for a run. It's very helpful. I think the shift in brain chemistry that comes from exerting yourself or a walk, but a run is, is more effective. That'll settle me and quiet the the chaos. What is your favorite hot beverage? Is coffee still at the top? I'd have to say coffee. Yeah. Have you gone back full fledged? Yeah. Full. Yeah. I'm full. (laughs) One cup a day. Love it. My plan of having coffee only once a week worked for a while, but slippery slope eventually. You know what? When I went back after my three months, I made the coffee and the filter broke and then it spilled everywhere. And I was like, is this a sign? sign? (laughs) (laughs) Luckily that has not happened to me. This is going to be a hard one. What would your last meal on earth be? I used to, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not an unusual question for somebody who writes about food. There's this last meal thing. And I used to say it'd be roast chicken. Really just fish is the only animal protein I eat at all. So I think it'd have to be salmon. I love salmon, lightly cooked or even raw. It would be salmon. Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable for you? (laughs) <laughs> getting up. <laughs> the coffee. Uh, well, yeah, I do. Uh, we have a pretty elaborate morning routine. It takes about two hours till we can get to our desk. That involves some reading in bed of the paper, some breakfast, and that's non-negotiable, breakfast. I, I did some intermittent fasting for a while, and I had two problems with it. One is I started losing too much weight, and second was I so miss – I love breakfast. It's my favorite meal. Lunch is pretty good too, and so is dinner. But all you have um, to do is move up dinner. And that's what yeah. we do. We eat early. We're, we're farmers now. We eat at like five, and then we have you know the the fourteen hours before breakfast. That's true. You get your intermittent fast, and then there's exercise and the meditation, and then we take a walk to get a cup of coffee. So I would say the non-negotiable part is the coffee. 
<laughs> I, I'll just leave it there. It's the coffee. <laughs> I love that you're saying we too. That's really sweet. You guys have your morning routine. Yeah, together. we do it together. Judith does not eat breakfast, but everything else we do together. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. Wendell Berry, big inspiration for me, both in thinking about the issues that I care about around nature and our proper engagement with it. And as a writer, I mean, his sentences are just so great. I learned so much from his nonfiction writing. I haven't read a lot of his fiction. He's a big influence. I'm glad you brought him into the conversation because I was thinking about him earlier too. He was such a visionary, you know, even yeah. things that you read that he wrote in the 70s. And the 70s like, wow, are we're so still relevant. thinking about this. I know. Well, he and Francis Moore LePay and Joan Gussow, I mean, they started this whole conversation in the 70s. We lose track of that. It just went away during the Reagan years and had to be kind of resuscitated, but they were definitely there first. Okay. What are you reading right now? A book that you would recommend? Oh, let's see. I am reading a couple things. I'm reading this really interesting dialogue between a Buddhist and a neuroscientist. And I forget the title of it. Uh, Matthew Ricard is the Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I forget the name of the neuroscientist. And it's a dialogue. Uh, and it's really good. I'm very interested in that exchange that that's happening, uh, that the Dalai Lama really got started, of mm -hmm. Buddhists talking to neuroscientists and, and, and the sharing of insights and the, it's remarkable how much insight Buddhism came up with about the mind and consciousness that is now being discovered or rediscovered by neuroscientists. I'm usually reading a novel. I just finished Sally Rooney's new novel. I haven't picked up a new one, but I think I'm going to read either Jonathan Franzen's book or Lauren Groff's book. I read a lot of contemporary fiction when I'm not doing research. Put those in the show notes and I'll follow up with you with the Ricard book just to get the name so we can share. Yeah. Oh, and the other one I am reading that I did just start, I read a couple chapters of is Bewilderment uh, by Richard Powers, who wrote The Overstory, which is a fantastic uh, book. Anyone who cares about nature uh, needs to read that book. It's it's really powerful. But anyway, his his new book, which is sort of a sequel to it, it's a smaller book, is called Bewilderment. I think the world of his writing. That's the book I'm in the middle of now. Okay, so this is the last one. What is one thing bringing you joy right now? Being here on this property. This is my happy place. You know, we don't get here that often. We don't live here anymore. But whenever I can spend a weekend or a week here, I just planted my garlic. Mm. It's the only crop now that I don't live here that, you know, takes care of itself. Yeah. It, it's, it's the crop for absentee owners. <laughs> and I have quince that are ready to harvest. So being here definitely gives me joy. Is this and here is, where, is my house in Cornwall, Connecticut. Yeah, I was going to say, is this the place where you wrote or where the building is that yeah. you built? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, which I can see from here. And it's the place where several of my books are set. And the first third of this new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, is here in this garden. My work all comes out of this. And Judith's work as a painter comes out of this place, too. This place means a lot to us. And we could never sell it. Yeah, so coming back here is is joyous. Any parting thoughts or anything you want to share before we jump off? No, I've enjoyed talking to you. Um, I hope you'll write down a few notes about the about the astrology chart so I have yeah. it and don't lose it and put Thanks it in my so. journal and that it was just a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being here and for being game with the astrology. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. 
I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.